I'm going to ask your forgiveness at the very beginning here before I begin this morning um, and, and may need you to help me out. As we enter uh, this winter together, and traditionally for the church, it's a time, this time between Christmas and Easter is a time to focus on the life of Christ. I've chosen to return to uh, the study that we shared, what, two years ago. Um, can you imagine that today starts my fourth year here, uh, but the study two years ago ended in the Gospel of Luke. I don't know how many of you may remember uh, where we left that study. We, we left it at the end of chapter 18, but over this winter, we pick it up in chapter 19, and here's why you have to forgive me. As I've been studying this passage over the week, I found myself with that little phrase running over and over again. You, you know, sometimes you have a little song that goes through your mind and you just can't get rid of it until it drives you crazy. And I've had this little phrase going through my mind all week long. Zacchaeus was a wee little man. And I found myself all week long going, wee little man. I, you know, I, just, I see my grandson, he's a wee little man. I just keep saying that. You may remember that song from Sunday school days. Zacchaeus was a wee little man. A wee little man was he. He climbed up in a sycamore tree for the Lord he wanted to see. You remember that one? Okay. <laughs> like I said, you need to forgive me, man. We should probably have had that as our scripture reading this morning. I mean, that would have been a fun thing to do. In any case, all week long I've been saying wee little man, so Forgive me if I break out into it during the sermon. I don't mean to be disrespectable, but what we have before us this morning in chapter 19 of the Gospel of Luke, and if you have your Bibles, please turn there with me, if you will, is such a delightful story. Zacchaeus, as I have it on your outline, was more than just a wee little man. He was the man, the little big man. And you find him right there in the very beginning of chapter 19, beginning in verse 1, a story that is so simple. It is simple enough to capture the imagination of every Sunday school child. And yet it is also a story that is so profound that it can break through the heart of even the most hardened adult. Zacchaeus was the little big man able to break those barriers. Now let me just read the first part of the story. It has, as I have in your outline, all of the elements of God's love in action. The grace of God that reaches out and accepts even the most unlikely candidates. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. And a man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. and He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. Now I'm going to have to stop there for just a moment to introduce to you this character called Zacchaeus. He wasn't just a tax collector. He was the chief tax collector of Jericho. And I suppose that it is just a little bit redundant for Luke to add that he was wealthy. But I'm glad that he did that because the tax system of that day is something of which we are unfamiliar or at least is distant from us. You see, people in Jesus' day would have read this with a grin on their face. And they would have connected some of the dots that Luke points out here. He says, let's see, Jericho? (laughs) Chief tax collector? Oh, of course he's wealthy. He's got the world by the tail, and he's got us by the throat. Let me explain. The Romans 
ruled the world with an iron fist, and they supported their empire with a heavy system of taxation. But they didn't collect their own taxes on their own. What they did was something along the order of a franchise business. They, they would sell the rights to collect taxes to private indigenous dealers. Concessions, you might call it. Local native businessmen would bid for the exclusive right to collect taxes from their own people on behalf of the Romans. And it was a system then that was ripe for abuse. All of the Romans were interested in, all that they were ever interested in, was getting their set fee, their commission. The local collectors, on the other hand, were allowed to tack on whatever they wanted as overhead. Profit, expenses, don't you know. And to top it off, these native tax collectors were backed up by the, probably the most effective collection agency in the day, the Roman Legion. Now you can imagine how popular these local businessmen, these tax collectors, were among the people. Let me add another dimension to the story. If you have a map in your Bible, you will, you will notice that Jericho occupied an extremely strategic position along one of the most major trade routes of the ancient world. It was a major thoroughfare for all traffic heading from Egypt to Mesopotamia, let alone all the traffic heading into Jerusalem. You can imagine now what this tax franchise in Jericho <laughs> would have produced. With all the standard tax on the local population, this franchise would have also included all the tolls, the tariffs, the import fees, and the customs as well. And every caravan, every uh, traveler would have had to pay the price. And the profits would have been huge. Now add one more item. Zacchaeus was not just a tax collector. One of the little minions sitting behind a desk, running an abacus. He was the chief. He was the one sitting on the top of the pyramid chart. And you would think to yourself, in that position, he has it all. But you would be wrong. One writer put it this way. The same road that had led him to the pinnacle of success had abandoned him in the back alley of loneliness and isolation. People despised tax collectors, and they really despised Zacchaeus. He had everything, and yet his heart was as empty as a tomb. What a diagnosis. I hate to say it, but the same could probably be said for so many, maybe even a few within this sanctuary right now. But what a a setup for a story. Here we have a, a man who has everything, and yet finds himself utterly alone and empty. But coming down the highway is a a man who has nothing and yet is surrounded by a multitude. You couldn't come up with a better contrast. And I'm not surprised that, if anything, curiosity alone would have been enough to drive Zacchaeus into verse 3. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but being a short man, he could not because of the crowd. So he ran ahead and he climbed a sycamore tree to see him since Jesus was coming that way. By the way, did I mention that Zacchaeus was a 
Wee, little man. Did I? I don't know if I did. So he climbs this tree. Hey, this man has never, ever let natural limitations stop him from accomplishing his goals in life. (laughs) He's going to climb the tree. And he's going to see Jesus. Case closed. But that's not the end of the story. The very steps he took to see Jesus opened the way for Jesus to see him. Look at verse 5. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up. (laughs) Now, now who knows why Jesus looked up? I, I have read any number of poetic explanations for this moment. Um, that there was a circle of people who had seen Zacchaeus climb the tree, and they they were standing there looking and laughing and pointing. Look look at him up in the tree! Or or that blind Bartimaeus, who had just received his sight in chapter 18, saw Zacchaeus and and knew that he needed a miracle too, and pointed him out to Jesus. That may be an explanation. I don't know. What caused Jesus to look up? I, I don't know. But I do know this. There is something in the heart of Jesus that is forever alert, searching for those who are lost. He's looking for you. He's looking for me. And it's no mistake that this encounter would then serve to illustrate the great and grand theme that defines the Gospel of Luke. If you put your finger on verse 5, drop your eye to verse 10, because there the whole gospel is explained in one verse, in verse 10. The Son of Man came to seek and to save what was lost. That's the mission of the gospel. And that is the passion of Jesus Christ, to seek and to save, to search and to rescue, to take you and me and bring us back to life. And here Jesus looks up and he sees Zacchaeus. What happened in that moment, Luke does not say. He doesn't really have to. We read in the Gospels that Jesus knows the inner thoughts formed in the inner spirit. In Matthew 12, verse 25, Jesus knew their inner thoughts, we read. In Mark chapter 2, verse 8, Jesus knew in his spirit that this is what they were thinking in their hearts. In John chapter 2, verse 25, Jesus did not need any man's testimony about himself, for he knew what was in a man. And in that moment, it took for him to catch Zacchaeus' eye Jesus knew it all. Everything there was to be known about this man. As one writer reads it, puts it, he says, the secret lines of heartache that had been etched upon the soul of Zacchaeus were instantly revealed to the eyes of Christ. The endless ledgers of deceit and deception were then peeled away to expose of Zacchaeus a desperation that was born of utter loneliness and emptiness. And when Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and he said to him, Zacchaeus, you wee little man. Yeah, it doesn't say that, but wee little man. Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. (laughs) Consider all of the elements bundled up in those words. All the composition of dignity and friendship that Jesus bestowed upon this wee little man by noticing him and accepting him, reaching out to him. 
First, he called Zacchaeus by name. Out of, the, out of the sea of humanity, God knows you by name. And, and then Jesus bestowed upon Zacchaeus the highest honor of all, a desire to stay with him. In fact, the word Jesus uses here leaves no other option. He says here, I must stay with you. The Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. It is something of his mission. I must stay. Nothing will distract him from that mission to know your name and to stay with you. I must stay, we read there, at your house. Not next week, let's set up an appointment, but today. Now is the time. There's no other explanation that needed to be made. The moment had come, and Zacchaeus, who, a man whose career had been built upon seizing opportunities, grasped the opportunity of a lifetime. Now, the words aren't there, but it's not hard to picture the action. Zacchaeus drops out of the tree, and then arm in arm, he walks past the Pharisees through the gates of his mansion and and, and he leaves all of them at a distance while in the courtyard of the house the servants then burst into action. There are guests to be welcomed, feet to be washed, food to be prepared, wine to be poured. But at the center of it all, there are two figures, Jesus and Zacchaeus, locked in a concentrated view. And on the edges, well, that's another story. Look at verse 7. All the people saw this and they began to mutter, He's going to be the guest of a sinner. <laughs> He's going to be a guest of a sinner. There's no surprise here, eh? To find people with their noses out of joint, blind to a rescue mission that is unfolding right before their very eyes. Stephen Brown, the pastor and the author of the book Key Life, he wrote this. I, I love this. He says, it's worth noting that Jesus didn't condemn bad people. He condemned stiff people. We are the ones who condemn the bad ones and affirm the stiff ones. We've got it backwards, but not Jesus. Whether it was a prostitute or a tax collector or an outcast, Jesus reached out to them. And it was a motley crew of riffraff that followed him around. And it never embarrassed him or made him feel uncomfortable. One of the most radical statements Jesus ever made is found in Matthew 9. It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I have come not to call the righteous, but to save the sinners. Sinners. And again, we have no record of the conversation that was concentrated in that moment of those two figures as they stood together. All we know is that Jesus and Zacchaeus were locked in a moment, and I cannot help but think that the very essence of Jesus an essence that takes away the sin of the world, became the sort of presence that drew sin like a poison out of the soul of that man. I know that because that's what's happened to me. And you know that, those of you who have trusted your hearts to Jesus, because that's what happened to you as well. I know that's because that's what happens to everyone who counters Jesus as Savior. That, that, that essence of which we sing, heaven came down and glory filled my soul when at the cross my Savior made me whole. My sins were washed away and my night was turned to day. Heaven came down and glory filled my soul. 
I love the story that is told by Bruce Thielman of a visit that he made to the Church of Our Lady in Copenhagen, Denmark. He writes, that's where the great Thorvaldsen statues are. And when you walk into the church, it's very, very dim. But after you're there for a few minutes, you begin to see the statues. They're, they're carved out of cold stone, but, they, but they, they, they look warm like living personalities. So warm that they could melt your heart. One statue of Christ stands with his arms extended. I walked up to that statue, Bruce writes. And as I looked, I thought, he has his eyes closed. He must be at prayer. A man who sat in the front pew ahead of me turned and said to me, you have to get on your knees to see his eyes. And I got down on my knees and I looked up and there I saw a face carved with such grace and mercy and compassion in those eyes that it was almost more than I could bear. (laughs) Consider all of the looks that Zacchaeus had met during his day and the week before, and the days before, and the years before, from the people all around him. Looks of fear, of hate, of anger. Here was the first from someone who said, I know you by name, and I love you, and I forgive you. Go and sin no more. That's what you see in the eyes of Jesus. And it broke his heart, and it touched his soul. And it brought to him the breath of life that changed his life. Look at verse 8. But Zacchaeus, he stood up and he said to the Lord, 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 here and now I give half my possessions to the poor, and if I have cheated anyone out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. This was not just a moment of emotion an expression of some sort of nice, warm, fuzzy feeling that many think that they will get from religion. This was, in fact, new life at work. If anyone is in Christ, we read, he is a new creature. The old is gone and the new is coming. And coming in a rush, in this case, in a very tangible way. His immediate actions fall under the heading of the word repentance, a desire and a determination to be different and to set things right. And two things have come into play here. An awareness of his sin in very specific terms and a desire to right his wrongs in a very sacrificial way. And it's not a a reluctant duty on his part. No, for many it is a reluctant duty to repent. I have a cartoon in my office of a a wealthy woman uh, speaking across a desk to a pastor and she says, look, I'm really not good at this repentance thing, so why don't I give you the keys for my condo in Cancun for a week and we'll let God call it even. (laughs) Ah. No. Zacchaeus, he stood up and he, he took a stand and he spoke and he put his money where, his mouth where his money was about to go. Lord, look, here and now I... I give half my possessions to the poor, and if I've cheated anybody out of anything, I'll pay back four times the amount. And he goes on the record for all to hear. (laughs) I love the way Ken Geyer described this amazing transformation. A, A life that was once stunted by greed, now suddenly overflowing with generosity. He writes this, he says, From behind the barriers he has erected around his heart, a flood of repentant feelings burst forth, feelings that had been dammed up for years. Zacchaeus goes out still on another limb. 
what took a lifetime to accumulate, one sentence of devotion liquidated. (laughs) And not by a token 10%, but half to the poor, fourfold to the defrauded. Look closely. Witness the miracle. A camel is now passing through the eye of a needle. (laughs) It's all come together. And Jesus speaks. Today, salvation has come to this house. Because this man, too, is the son of Abraham. That one sentence is filled with all the grace of heaven. You can linger on each of the words. First, anyone who has been saved, who has responded with integrity and from the heart to Jesus Christ, any person who has been saved can be assured of that salvation immediately. It has come. It is staying. And the promise of Jesus is stated in the fact that you can take it to the bank. He who has the Son has the life. And Jesus makes his announcement here. Second, salvation has come and come to this house. Once a person is saved, the evidence will produce a changed life. And those who will notice it the most will be those who are the closest. And those are the ones who can measure the authenticity of of a a conversion. They are the ones who are most often the family, the friends, the associates, and they will be the ones who can be able to make the measure that will find themselves one step closer in their journey with Jesus as well. So full assurance, salvation has come. Testimony to this house. Third, fulfillment. He too now is the son of Abraham. In the book of Genesis, the children of Israel were to spring up from the character of their father Abraham, a character that was defined as a matter of faith, trusting God and living in a relationship with him. And the Apostle Paul would nail that theme down in Galatians chapter 3 when he wrote, You are children of God through faith in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. That's you and me. That's you and me. That's you and me. You were created with a purpose. You were designed for a relationship. And you were meant to come home to God. And with faith, this journey is complete. When, 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 when Zacchaeus heard those words, his life, his dreams, his hopes, his needs, they all collided together and he found himself now at home as a son of Abraham. I have to think of that as I look. Are you home yourself? Are you home yet? Closing the scene Christ utters those words, which then I said stand as the theme for the entire gospel, a theme that we, t- we, we, we must take to heart and allow him to do. The Son of Man has come to seek, to save those who are lost. You have to ask yourself the question, where has life's journey brought you? You may have tried so many things. You may have pursued so many ideals. You, have, you may have attempted so many goals, and yet you may find yourself somewhat lost at the core. In his book, Telltale Tears, Bruce Tillman writes, The Son of Man who came to seek and to save that which was lost, 
him who is lost, you and me. Quite frankly, he writes, I have become sick to death of personal ideals. I, I have so many ideals that I've been so frustrated by them. I really don't care for anymore. What I'm looking for is a savior. Not someone who will just tell me what I ought to be, but someone who will forgive me for what I am, and then with this very love, enable me to be more than I ever believed I could be. And that is exactly what Jesus does. For Zacchaeus, thou wee little man, for you and for me. The Son of Man came seeking. Ask yourself the question, are you in a position where you can be found? He's seeking, and he is more than able to save. Ask yourself the question, is your life moving now in his direction? Is it coming under his care? Is it being lived for his purpose? Those are questions we, we resolve with him, and it's time to decide and the questions that we now bring to prayer.